Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. I'm getting pretty fast at saying that, folks. I'm joined here. Thanks. Thank you. And less mistakes than usual. I just want to... All in one take. Oh, thank you. All in one take. All right. All right. Okay. So that comment got a little backhanded, but... I covet wanting to do the intro. (laughs) You should give it a That's shot sometime. I'm I'm happy to share my intro responsibilities. Your intro people. My name is Scott Red, and I'm the president here. And I'm joined with my colleagues, as always, Dr. Grace Utanto, Dr. Peter Lee, Dr. Tommy Keen, uh, uh, Dr. Paul Jean is abroad uh, doing some mission work this week uh, in Central America, but he'll be back with us again. Um, we're going to pick up here in this Christmas season with a couple of questions. We're going to do a little bit of a miscellany um, episode here where we want to handle some questions that have come through from the audience. And uh, we've got three in particular, uh, totally disparate issues, one de- dealing with the liturgical calendar, one dealing with redemptive historical readings of the book of Job and others, and another one de- dealing with the practical question of how you discern uh your heart in your heart between yearning a godly yearning and uh, a breaking of the 10th commandment that is coveting so how do we discern those things in the christian life so let's start it off brothers with this first question that came to us as many people know there is a um, there's a chronological war on christmas <laughs> this christmas season because sunday way to raise the is christmas day okay so someone should have told the Gregorian calendar that it was doing it wrong. So Christmas, that's right, our calendar is Gregorian, right? Isn't that right? I'm not someone, a historian. Someone can critique I'm New Testament. Uh, <laughs> and we are old, so we work on history. That's right. We're just interested in solar versus lunar, lunar calendars, uh, which actually has which something to say about this discussion. Indeed. We are already really off topic. Yeah. Let's get back to, to let's get back to the issue at hand. So, as we all know, this upcoming Christmas is falling on a Sunday, and therefore, it's kind of creating some conflict in churches. Churches are trying to figure out what do we do with this. Sunday morning, of course, is when children are supposed to be opening presents and stockings and hanging around in their pajamas till late in the afternoon. So, what are we supposed to do with Sunday worship? on a day like Christmas Day. Clearly, we're not supposed to cancel it. So I'll, I'll put <laughs> all my cards on the table there. We're not supposed to cancel it. We're supposed to worship the Lord because Christmas is about the incarnation and we're supposed to be obeying. Okay, so you went a different... So, so we're supposed to worship because it's Christmas Day. We're supposed to worship because of the liturgical calendar. Uh, no, it's the other way around okay. um, because um, we're commanded to worship every week. And um, I've been influenced a lot by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church on this matter. And um, I'm a little bit suspicious of the liturgical Is that, calendar. That's capital O, Orthodox Presbyterian Church? Uh, You're not just talking about all of us here. You're yeah, as in, as in the o- OPC. Okay. But, of course, I'm very friendly okay. to those who do uphold the liturgical calendar. Uh, I think it is um, a matter of, of serious debate um, in some ways. And people are looking at me right now around the room. Uh, because I, I need to make room for everyone. That's what they're trying to communicate to me. But anyway, can I feel that out a little bit? Though? Say, yes, so, so Sunday morning, 
you'll have you need to have service because yes. it's it's the it's Lord's commanded. day. Yes, this it's is, the Lord's this is day. What we're called to do. Yes, it's Christmas morn. Right. Would you in Grace Utanto's church? Would you accommodate for the fact this is Christmas morning? Would you comment on it? Would you talk about it? Would you light the you know the Advent cal- uh, candle? Yeah. How do, how do you handle it? I might comment on it, but I would say something like this, maybe in terms of logical priority, that because the Sabbath day is actually commanded in Scripture, mm-hmm. and it's actually, um, it's got revelatory status, right? Whereas the right. Um, liturgical calendar does not, then whatever is revealed should take precedence over that which is, let's say, adiaphora, yeah. um, if you could put it that way. And what's what's Adiaphora again? Adiaphora is and it's, it's a matter of conscience, um, mm-hmm. right? It's um, for Scott. Scott knows. It's allowable, <laughs> permissible, perhaps you know. Um, so, uh, the Bible talks about common, ordinary uses of, of the light of reason, yeah. with regard to ordinary circumstances for us to um, attend to matters of worship, right? Yeah. So um, that's what I mean by things adiaphora. not clearly taught in Scripture. Right? Yes. So that's a good that, that's that's a maybe good that's maybe a good, middle ground answer. I mean, there's a couple of different ways you could come at this, right? Yes, exactly. That's a good starting point, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, just to put one obvious position out there. Well, I like how you put it the the kind of revelatory aspect of that, which goes back, of course, to um, you've got a creational aspect to that mm-hmm. one day in seven, that being Saturday in the old covenant, and then a resurrection aspect to that, the mm-hmm. centrality of well, to, to use the liturgical language, the centrality of Easter in the rhythm of the weekly, uh, yep. our weekly participation in worship. You know, Gray, I would love for you to explain uh, what exactly is the OPC position on uh, on the Lord's Day worship. <laughs> it, it's it sort of the way like that you articulated um, it's a you know, versus a liturgical calendar. Well, just for the sake of our uh, listening audience, I so mean. this is the OPC minister asking the IPC minister right. about OPC. And, and to be clear, I, I'm not exactly sure if there is one particular OPC position, but I was a member of an OPC church during my seminary years, and those those were formative years for me, as I've come to realize now over and over again. And in that particular church, it was emphasized that um, we should follow the regulative principle, and so we should not follow the liturgical calendar. Mm-hmm. And every Sunday we do um, celebrate things that we celebrate in, in regard to Easter and, and Christmas, resurrection, incarnation. That's always every Sunday. So um, it seems superfluous to follow yeah, all the other. I don't think that's distinctly OP. I mean, no. that is a Reformed confessional yeah. conviction, yeah. you know, across the board. You know, Howard Griffith, you know, mm-hmm. uh, had that conviction, and he was a minister in the PCA where— you know, he he didn't have special Sunday services ever. Yeah. Even even you know Resurrection Sunday, uh, he didn't distinguish distinct. At least I don't think he did. He mm-hmm. may have commented on it, but you know, for the idea that all um, like Old Testament festivals and special celebrations are fulfilled in Christ, thus we have one Lord's Day mm-hmm. that is the one distinct day of worship. So it, it's special enough on its own. We don't need mm-hmm. to make it any more special. And so every Lord's Day is meant to be a time when we preach, you know, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, uh, if the text allows for it, the birth of Christ. The, it, in other words, it's not seasonal. Yeah. You yeah. know, the, the gospel is not contingent on particular times of the year. Mm-hmm. It is what we preach every Lord's Day. So, Okay, so I'm totally on board with everything that you said theologically totally on board with Sunday is the 
is the holy day of the Christian week. I do have this question, is it appropriate then, given kind of where y'all are going, this question's a bit morphed from the original question, but is it appropriate to acknowledge Christmas at all? Um, you know, I've been at churches that kind of ignored the whole holiday uh, because we got to put our focus on Jesus. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm all in for the smells and bells, light those Advent can- candles, do all the Advent songs, um, wreaths in the, in the worship service, I don't, doesn't bother me. But where, where do you, where, navigate us through that question, how do we, do we acknowledge the day? And if so, what's, what's a good balance there? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And some, obviously some Presbyterians hold a very strong negative view on coming in and, and, and observing any kind of liturgical calendar. I think we have to say in light of regulative principle and Christian liberty that you must be free to worship as Scripture requires, right? And yet also uh, and free in regards to the liturgical calendar. Right. The church has to be free in regards to the liturgical calendar and that they're not bound by it. We're not binding anyone's conscience. We're not saying the church has to observe these things, okay? Like other forms or elements of worship, like which hymns you pick, you know, or do you do three hymns uh, and two worship songs or something like that? Um, you know, I think there does need to be a distinction there. However, you can also recognize that the liturgical calendar is developed in the early church by people who are thinking, okay, so how do we actually honor this important day, which is the fact that Jesus was actually incarnate, was born on a day? How do, how do, we, how do we honor this great event of human history and remember it and recognize it? And I think we can do that. We can even form kind of our, 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 our yearly calendar around remembrances and monuments and yet never lift them up to the level of what's required by scripture that is you know that is sabbath worship lord's day worship so i've seen this worked out in a bunch of different ways like you said some churches ignore it completely i remember one time i was at a church plant where uh my friend and i who were had it leading leading it um had we're, we're going through a proverbs series and it just so happened that the series just stretched right through the advent season mm-hmm. and we were like Damn the torpedoes, here we come. <laughs> and we went right through Christmas teaching on Proverbs. I mean, there was no adjustment to the text at all. And, uh, you know, the feedback, you know, was pretty clear. They're like, we need to not do that again. You know, <laughs> we need to acknowledge that, you know, this is a see Everyone, it's, it's in, in some ways, you know, well, I was going to say it's like acknowledging the Super Bowl and Super Bowl Sunday, acknowledging that that's happening. But it's more than that, right? It's different from that. But we do need to acknowledge like these, you know, this is something that everyone is thinking about in your congregation. If you know your congregation, then you need to be, you know, you, you need to be engaged with that and sensitive to the fact that everyone's dealing with these kinds of things. And I also think, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with Advent, calendar, you know, Advent candles and, and special readings and going through uh, yeah. particular messianic texts during this season. We all went to go see the Messiah over the weekend over at the Naval Academy. That must have been awesome. It was glorious. It was just, it was just beautiful. And yet also not lifted up and say, therefore, this is what true Christian worship requires. I guess right? my conviction would be that we don't feel uh, limited. In other words, if I talked about, you know, God is with us in July, I don't think that should be awkward. You know, that shouldn't be something we limit just to a, you know, a, an Emmanuel message is only 
something that you preach on in right. December. Yeah. Like you don't preach about the cross only on Good Friday. You know, it, it's that type of thing that in the rest of the year we can kind of be gospel soft. And I don't think that's the right thing. So, you know, given this time of the year and in the entire world, yeah. you know, is now sensitive to something that we as Christians hold to every day of the year, mm-hmm. to take advantage of that opportunity now to really exalt the Christian gospel and the importance of the Incarnation and to remind people, you know, why we do what we do and believe what we believe doesn't seem unwise. It seems mm-hmm. very strategic. It seems to take advantage of the opportunity that is before us. It's right. engaging with the community. Yeah. I mean, brave see my neo-Calvinism. It's one of those rare, it's rare moment where, <clears throat> I mean, Handel's Messiah on Sunday was a good example of this. It's a rare moment where everyone stands and literally says with their mouth, mm. right. <laughs> you know, a thousand people in a room, um, hallelujah, All right, the Lord reigns forever and ever. And you have this moment where you go, as a believer, it's not, I'm not affirming nominalism. I'm not affirming, um, you know, some kind of false beliefism or something like that. But recognizing here you have this calendar where attention is drawn to the yeah. incarnation. Why would you not celebrate that alongside, yeah. alongside others? What'd y'all do in Jakarta, Gray? You have like, particularly Jakartan traditions around Christmas time or what's what was the habit of your church uh we did not have a distinct Christmas service if we had Christmas falling on say a Friday or something like that but we would probably mention it on Sunday morning Mm -hmm. that this was Christmas weekend or whatever um I mean there's different again different ways of thinking about these things right so so on the one hand like what Scott is saying is that you know, with the influence of a particular worldview, like the Christian faith, um, two ways in which that worldview could be witnessed to as leavening the whole culture is the way in which that worldview changes the way you view time and the way you view spaces. Mm -hmm. So distinct church buildings and also distinct ways in which time is ordered around um, redemptive history or, or themes from scripture, things like that, that that um, influencing culture would look like the calendar being oriented around the Christian faith. And so there's some arguments toward that effect, you know, so when you take a look at, for instance, Islam, Islam has a very, what you might call distinctly one kingdom view. Mm-hmm. If, if we could use that phrase, that's a loaded phrase. But Muslim theologians in the past have argued that Christian theology is double-minded and schizophrenic precisely because of our distinction between two cities or maybe even two kingdoms. And I'm Mm -hmm. I'm using those words again with some trepidation because these are debated terms. But Muslim theologians in the past have argued, you know, Christians are schizophrenic because on the one hand, the king has to rule in one way, but the common people rule in in another way, and the church rules in one way, and the state rules in another way. But in Islam, you have just one... Right kingdom in the sense of, you know, Muhammad was a state leader and at the same time a religious leader. And as a religious leader who's also a state leader, he oriented the liturgical calendar, so to speak, of all of Mecca and Medina, where, you know, you pray to a certain direction, there's Eid al-Adha, Eid al-Fitr, and you fast in a particular month in the year and so on. So they would see that as just very appropriate because all of creation and all of humanity is supposed to serve the Lord, right? So there's that aspect that 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 I think is is manifested in 
perhaps appropriations of, of Christendom or manifestations of Christendom that they want to witness the appropriateness of the Christian worldview in 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 shaping all of our spaces and all of our time. But there is a distinction between the so-called civil sphere and the spiritual kingdom, right? So in what ways, therefore, should um, should we have that kind of desire or yearning um, to shape all of space and time in light of God's kingdom, as if the kingdom of God is now or something like that? All right, and, and secondly, so that's that's one side of things I would want to say. This the second thing, and this is something I'm not that, speaking about liturgical calendar in general. No, no, not liturgical calendar, but but the desire for the shaping of all no. of culture to inhabit a kind of Christian culture in terms of the shaping of spaces and times. Um, the second way of looking at it, kind of the antithesis against that, is you know, again, Scripture does not say that we have to do this, and and secondly, it seems to us that you know um, there is a kind of consumerist instinct perhaps, in wanting to follow just Christmas Day and just Good Friday, let's say, but not Ash Wednesday or Maundy Thursday or all the other aspects of Advent calendar. The lament days. Exactly. Why why only these and not everything else? Mm -hmm. How come we get to just pick and choose? And on what basis should we just pick and choose, if that makes sense? So this is something, again, that old OPC church instilled in me, so this is my sort of heartbeat is actually in this latter category. Um. Because it does seem to reflect the kind of consumer's mindset of evangelicalism. We want to celebrate these aspects of the Advent calendar, but not other aspects of the Advent calendar. Anyway, those are just scattered thoughts of two sides of the question, pros and cons. Well, and it gets to the issue of, you know, people will commonly say, well, Christmas isn't about the incarnation anymore. It's about consumerism. And no doubt, I mean, that's, right. that's, a, that's a major cultural force as we're having this conversation. And it kind of ties us back into the question, so what are you celebrating on that Sunday, Christmas morn, yeah, that's going to come up in a couple of weeks here. <laughs> what are you celebrating? And if you're celebrating Christ, then wouldn't you go and observe the form of worship? Yeah, you know that he, that he that he mandates for us, or are you celebrating something else? Yeah, right. And I and I, you know, as our family, we've thought about our church is going to just keep going on. I know some churches are only doing the evening evening services. I've heard of some who aren't holding services at all because it's Sunday. Um, our church is going to continue on as is, but we are going to, for, we're going to form the day kind of around the fact that this is also a different kind of Sunday right? yeah. that we're, that we're honoring here. And we're not going to act as if that's not the case or move everything back a day to Saturday or something along those lines, which I suppose is what some people might do. A good little piece to reflect on um, is Kevin DeYoung wrote, pastor, don't cancel your Sunday worship services this, this Christmas. I think he wrote that in 2016 and it's circulating our, uh, again right now on the internet. And one of the things he says there is that Sunday is the Lord's Day before it's Christmas, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So we should, yeah. your priorities should reflect that. I and guess pragmatically, I think, you know, to Scott's point, it's already, because of the consumerism of American culture, it's already hard to honor the day as a, as a religious day. It's true. The true meaning of Christmas, as, 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 uh, as Linus will tell us, and... Uh, but the sab- the Sabbath can elevate that. Mm-hmm. It can remind us yeah. of what this is about. Yeah. We have another question. Take unless us there. there's unless there's take us to comments. The we have a, we have a question from uh, one of our our listeners. I'm going to um, 
first of all, find it. And then second of all, <laughs> summarize it because uh, there are a lot of wonderful thoughts uh, throughout, but it is a bit long to read on, on air. Uh, but uh, the questioner says, um, thank you, gentlemen, for your service to the Lord. I was listening to two of your podcasts, the one on Job and the one with Dick Gaffin. Uh, Dr. Gaffin mentions near the end of the podcast the importance of not preaching the Old Testament in an exemplary way, but to preach with an emphasis on the Historia Salutis, although not at the exclusion of the Ordo Salutis. Do you see a redemptive historical understanding in Job? He goes on to, brothers, to list a couple of ways in which he's sees various redemptive historical components in Job, the typo- typological kind of uh, Job before the, the courtroom of God idea. Job is, Job is a suffering servant who suffers for and amongst his friends. Um, it raises kind of a bigger issue of how do we interpret in a redemptive historical way non-narratival yeah. And particularly, I think, proverbial kinds of material that we find in in the yeah. Old Testament. Thoughts on, well, that's, on that matter? Yeah, I mean, I've got a, a few thoughts. One being, with the return or the rise post-Voss, post the finding of suzerain vassal treaties, you know, in the 20th, late 20th century, there was this movement by many to a sole redemptive historical reading of scripture. And one of the critiques of that is that if you only have a redemptive historical approach, then what are you supposed to do with these texts that are not Not clearly historical, narratival texts? What do you do with a psalm that you can't, it's not written by David? Or actually, for that matter, if, if the psalm is written by David, that's the way you preach it, is that you instantly pop out whatever he's saying to David's yeah. life, and then you plug it into redemptive history, right? And you don't pay attention to the text. I remember uh, hearing a pastor doing this one time, preaching through Ecclesiastes, and really every sermon was, look how Solomon said this. Who's Solomon? He's the son of David. We're longing for the other stuff. You know, kind of like, you know what I mean? It just kept yeah. Which isn't a bad to, sermon, but it's not your only sermon. Well, every Sunday for yeah. uh, for 12 chapters, yeah, then while, it becomes, you know, kind of becomes, okay, what's going on? So... I think that there's there's an important – if we understand redemptive history as being not merely moving – I know Dick Gaffin didn't mean this either, but not moving merely just to the substitutionary atonement of Christ, yeah. but the whole character of Christ being the culmination of God's revelation and, and works of redemption in history, then you can start pulling out things like, yes, Job intercedes for his friends. This shows us something about God. God's M.O., you might say, God's typical manner of, of acting. And we start to say, okay, so we should too long for intercession because we know we fall into the same sins of Job's friends. Who will intercede for us, right? Now, now we're starting to get a redemptive historical reading. I think you can do the same thing with Ecclesiastes. You know, Kohelet and Ecclesiastes is highlighting all of these very true and kind of painfully true observations about life. And yet, each one has this kind of seated idea, but God is there. God is good. You can love life even in the midst of the struggle. God's behind it. You know, and what is that doing? This that's reminding us of something about Christ. This is a kind of a Trinitarian redemptive historical reading, right? Everything that the Old Testament says about God, it's saying about Christ. Mm-hmm. And 
that's and then so we have we have Christ as the perfect representation of that the, the perfect embodiment of the Godhead, right? And so, I think that opens up all kinds of readings now of non-narratival texts because we can say, this is God's word; it's revealing God's character. Christ is the perfect representation of that, the culmination of that, and that gives us new avenues to coming in the redemptive historical, a kind of redemptive historical reading, which is admittedly more systematic, perhaps more thematic mm-hmm. than historical. And yet I think that's why, you know, you, we have to have a, um, you know, we have to have a multi-pronged approach to these texts. Yeah. There's not only, there's not one way of doing redemptive historical. Actually, there's a little article by Vern Poitras called type kinds of biblical theology. And he, he does a kind of taxonomy yeah. of, biblical theological methods, it's more descriptive than prescriptive, but mm-hmm. I, I like it as a, as almost a prescriptive lens to think about how to get to Christ from the Old Testament. Uh, and one of them is, you know, a thematic or topical or theological approach it doesn't necessarily have to be reduced to storyline, narrative, yeah. or, or even typology in the narrow sense of David, Jesus, the greater David. Voss uses the language, right, of an era or of a line versus a circle, right. where systematics is the circle and biblical, you know, biblical theological, redemptive historical in these in this conversation is 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 a line, and I think I think those are two helpful complementary ways of thinking about it. And some texts are going to lend themselves more to systematic theology. There's a reason why systematic theologies tend to quote the letters of Paul, the Psalter. Uh, you know, in a couple other places, because that's where you have a lot of propositional statements, and so they're given more to kind of that holistic, synchronic style of systematic theology. Whereas the the histories and the narratives give themselves more of the kind of developmental reading, you know, diachronic yeah. reading. I think uh, it's helpful that, you know, uh, it, there's a certain misconception, I think, that we can have of Voss's biblical theology, because, um, you know, in, in his definition of biblical theology— uh, he actually doesn't use the term history of redemption. He uses the term history of divine revelation. Mm-hmm. Right. And there is a difference. Be- and now, granted, when you read this biblical theology, it is historical. He doesn't have a section dedicated to the Psalms, wisdom literature, um, um, you know, and, and things of this nature. So, uh, But he does make the distinction in his definition of biblical theology um, of form and content. And by form, he's talking about the literary forms of Revelation, mm-hmm. the content of Revelation, the historical. So, but now he granted he focuses on the historical redemptive aspect because that was the challenge of his day, and he need we needed to get the history right, and so he really emphasized the history. But the misconception that people can have is that <clears throat> Voss didn't care about literature or the literary analyses, and that's not true. He can only you can only do so much yeah. in a certain thing, and the fact that he wrote an eschatology of the Psalter. Mm-hmm. Shows that he is sensitive to, uh, to literary things and, yeah. and 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 things of this nature. For that reason, when we if we define biblical theology in that in that more pure Voss sense, that it is the history of divine revelation. Yeah. Divine revelation doesn't count history. You know, God's acts in history. That's true, but it also accounts for God's revelation of the Word, and the Word has certain literary forms, yeah. as you His were talking character. about. Yeah. So in that sense, Job is literature. It's history, but it is literary. It, and there is a, uh, and the be- and the beauty, and, to, and again, to me, the the strength of a biblical theological analysis 
is that it, it really tries to find its telos in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so uh, if we see the telos in Christ both historically and literarily, you still can't see Christ in Job uh, in, in that kind of broader sense. And so, yeah. and, and it's almost impossible to not think of Christ when you read Job. I mean, just the mm-hmm. whole nature of his suffering. Um, you know, I think if I remember right, the uh, uh, Job was very common in the ancient church during the time of the Passion Week for mm-hmm. obvious reasons, mm-hmm. because it just fits that uh, criteria. To, to not preach Christ or Job as a type of Christ just seems to me you know, you're you're missing the obvious opportunity to mm-hmm. to see not just Christ. I mean, Christ is the way that Jesus uh, uh, summarized uh, his own life ministry uh, in Luke 24 as, as a movement from suffering to glory. Yeah. You see that in Job yeah. real yeah. clearly, and so yeah, I think that that's really a helpful. The typological connection to getting to Christ is really helpful. You could play up. I, I kind of think of um, Jesus and Peter in that conversation. Jesus right. saying, "I'm I," you know. Peter confesses, you are the Messiah. Jesus says, you are right. Peter, Jesus starts talking a lot about suffering. And Peter says, may it never, you know, that's not you. I mean, that is a, that is the theology of Job's friends mm-hmm. now operating in reverse. You, right. you can't suffer because you're the righteous one. Yeah. And Jesus, in response, submits himself to the will of, of the Father. Mm-hmm. T- two other ways of getting to Jesus I, that I find helpful in kind of proverbial material. Um one, G- G- Jesus is the one who reads and applies wisdom. Uh, so that he, you know, G- Jesus sits at the feet of the wise sage, as it were, and ultimately his heavenly father. So where, where do I see in Jesus' life him applying the wisdom that, that he learned uh, from the Old Testament? Um, and then Jesus is the source of wisdom. Jesus, mm-hmm. Jesus in his life exemplifies and even extends wisdom for for his people yeah the uh, christ crucified is the wisdom of god he's the one greater yeah. than solomon i also think actually you, as you're saying that it, it what popped in my head as i was thinking about christ calming the wind and the waves in mm-hmm. mark four you know that's that's basically the same logic as the book of job right you have the friends questioning everyone's questioning what did you do job says i didn't do anything but what is this about what's going on here and then god raises up and you know appears in in the whirlwind in job 38 and gives him his lordship over creation is the answer what do you have in you know in mark 4 the wind and the waves are coming over the boat they say don't you care that we're perishing not knowing who they're talking to or what that question actually implies and what does he do and answer he stands up and calms the wind and the waves in front of them and now, like Job, they're more scared than they were before, right? It's, it's that's a good. I like that because we can make this typological mm-hmm. connection between Jesus and Job. But in that story, Jesus is the divine right, right. voice saying, "Yeah, he's human <laughs> messiah." Yeah, right, right. He's human messiah, and yeah. he's and he's divine yeah. messiah, right? That'll preach. <laughs> We've got one more question. Yeah, we got one more. I think it's a great that that's a great question, and I think about it a lot. I know Dr. Lee does too, because we teach wisdom and poetry and all these books that aren't clearly redemptive historical. And I think you do have to you got to kind of you know, open the hatch in the back of your head and yeah. just let your mind expand on how you're thinking about Jesus as the fulfillment of 
all of these themes that you see show up and develop throughout the Old yeah. Testament. Um, okay, last question. This one comes out of actually a, a class that I was teaching on the Tenth Commandment, and we were talking about coveting. And uh, it, it did kind of strike me that coveting is an interesting, it's one of the interesting um, you know, commandments in that it really does get at a disposition about things. It's not uh, the act of a thing, but it's a disposition towards things in the world around you. And it therefore gets a little bit murky. Of course, this is the one that Paul says is, uh, coveting will get you every time, even if you do okay on all the other stuff. Coveting's the one that's gonna mm-hmm. <laughs> that's gonna get you. Um, and a question was raised. Okay, so there's we have to admit there's a godly yearning, right? I could see, um, you know, I could see a person with wisdom and, and desire to have wisdom like that and and to yearn for it. I could see the glory of God in creation and yearn to be there again anyone who's ever wanted to go back to the beach or back to the mountains paul Paul says in first corinthians right it's good to desire the greater gifts right right so how do you discern between that a godly yearning we might even add on to that a godly yearning that comes out of your redemption and unification with christ The, the assumption being if you've died you no longer live christ lives within you you are yearning now for the kingdom in a godly way, a natural way. And yet, how is that different then from coveting, you know, the coveting the things that you see around you? How do we make that distinction? Or how would you pastorally advise someone who says, I'm not sure if I'm yearning in a godly way or am I coveting in a sinful way? <laughs> Just going to let the silence ride. <laughs> I, I feel like the silence needs to be there in the final version of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have I have a thought because I've thought about this from it's the here. standpoint of prayer. Like mm-hmm. when it, you know, I, I'm going to do a simplistic example. Is it okay to pray? You know, Christmas is coming, right? Is it okay to pray for a kid to pray? I want a bicycle. Mm-hmm. And dear God, please, this Christmas, can yeah. I have a bicycle? Is that a is that a covetous prayer? Is that a sinful prayer? Is it a materialistic prayer? And of course, the answer is it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, what and how then do I kind of think about it in terms of what what would make it not sinful, not covetous, not materialistic? And without being without over spiritualizing it or encouraging a kind of narcissistic um, introspection. Being able to see one's desires in light of their kind of kingdom impact. You know, yeah. j- you know Jesus, in, when he instructs us to pray, um, he prays, give us this day our day. We're, we're instructed to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We're instructed to pray for, if we broaden that out, not just our, our needs, but the things that, uh, that delight us in this, in this world, but we are simultaneously praying thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and that that primary prayer thy will be done that primary prayer thy kingdom come those contextualize Mm -hmm. the prayer for daily bread i i i am to you and 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 so i'm always to be using gifts so i get the bicycle that bicycle i am giving thanks to god for it i am delighting in it in and, and basking in God's pleasure at giving a good gift, and I am y- using it in a kingdom, 
in my life in a kingdom-centric way, which, you know, it's a bicycle, so mm-hmm. the impact on the kingdom is not going to be, you know, momentous, but that right. that it, it has a kind of efficacy, usefulness, fruitfulness mm-hmm. in my work relative to the kingdom. And that may just be delighting in God's good gift, but to bring that kind of kingdom-centered aspect to our, our desires. That's great. I think another distinction that might be helpful here is to make a distinction between demand versus petition. I think when you ask of God in a demanding way, um, you're using God instrumentally for this thing that you're yearning as an end, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, Augustine makes a distinction between use and enjoyment. God is the one that you should enjoy and you should use things in order to enjoy God, which which is just to say that God is your end and other things are to be used instrumentally for God as an end. No, um, so, so in other words, then when you're demanding something of God, and let's say you're demanding a lot of money from God, um, money becomes your end and God becomes a mere means to that end. And what you're doing there is also tethering the character of God uh, to whether or not he would grant you this end, right? So God is good only insofar as yeah. he's going to give you that money. So you've, you know, this is the thief on the cross to Jesus, you know, uh, if you really are God, then, you know, rescue us right now from the cross, which is a demand. Um, prove to me that you're good, prove to me that you're divine by giving me this other end. That's a demand. With regard to petition, however, you recognize that God is your end and all these other things are from God. And so there's also no need to prove God to yourself, if that makes sense. So, so God is good. And so you're going to trust him uh, and without um, taking into consideration whether he's going to give you that thing, he would remain good to you because he is good himself. And so you're not going to tether his goodness to whether he gives you this thing because everything else is merely a, a penultimate good compared to God who was your highest good. Yeah. There is a certain idolatry in yeah. covetousness. Yeah. It's yeah. basically saying, you know, the fact that I am in a uh, communion bond with the Lord is not enough. I need something more. Mm-hmm. I covet that thing. As opposed to yearning is I'm satisfied with the Lord, right. uh, and yet I long for this, but if I don't get it, I'm still okay. Mm. Uh, but coveting is saying, you know, it, it's sort of the a misreading uh, of the Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom, and yeah. God will give all these other things as well. Sounds like a great deal. Hey, if I seek God's kingdom, I'm going to get all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just need to seek, you know, where's the priority here? As opposed to, you know, how Jesus meant it, to seek the kingdom. Don't right. worry about these other things. You know, shoot for the higher goal. And uh, and I wonder if we uh, miss um, uh, miss uh, misunderstand that you know that so a child who prays for a bike and then whatever reason gets rollerblades instead, you know might be disappointed, but ultimately you know his doctrine of God is not shaken. You know yeah. he's still content and and, yeah. and happy uh, and. Uh, and comes to terms with that. And doesn't question God's lordship. I mean, kind of coming back to the kingdom themes and demanding versus petition. petition. I think you're right. Coveting is like a, Lord, you're God, I honor you. But if I'm going to be happy, if I'm going to be secure and comfortable in this world, then I need X, Y, Z. X, Y, Z. Whereas, and that's, what is that doing? That's questioning God's lordship and his provision for you in a way that's not a trust. You're not trusting in the Lord, but it's actually the opposite. You're saying, if I, if I had, if I had my druthers, I'd do this a different way. Yeah. And with that though, I'd add, I would just only add, there is a kind of corollary here between lament and 
grumbling. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't. So God yeah. doesn't answer my prayer, right? Paul's thorn in the flesh in Second Corinthians twelve. You know, God deliberately mm-hmm. doesn't answer Paul's prayer, and Paul is very much cognizant of this, um, and and yet. And he laments that, but he doesn't grumble about it. He, he entrusts no. himself to the will of God while at the same time, uh, yeah. uh, Hebrews 3, I think, has got the language of Je- Jesus, um, though, he, though he sought for it with tears. Yeah. Yeah. And yet he honored. But I yeah. think, you know, it's, it, I think we get it from Paul. We get it a lot in the Psalter. I think the Psalter, if you want to look, how do you, how do you yeah. desire and yearn in a godly manner? The psalmist gives us words for yeah, it. That's but I think you're absolutely right. It is like, it's like grumbling versus lament. It's like lust versus love. Even interestingly, in the New Testament, it's kind of like gratitude versus pride. You know, you think of the, 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 the man saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that other man. Sounds like gratitude. How, how do you distinguish gratitude from pride? All yeah. right? um, and a lot of it is coming down, I think, to this heart issue I think one good rule of thumb is, you know, we talk about kingdom, petition versus demand. I think one thing, you know, maybe a broader way we could put it is just, does it take away from your worship of the Lord or does it add to it? Because I feel like going in petition, going in light of the kingdom, right, asking for a thing in Jesus' name adds to my worship because I'm trusting in the Lord as provider. Whereas if it's taking away, and I think we all feel that, you feel that in a way when it switches over to now it's about me and what I need and not about my worship of the Lord. You know, when that switch happens, I kind of feel you can, mm. you know, you can feel the sin click in and the righteousness yeah. drain away, you know, and from it, the thing. And intuitively, I think we all are aware of that. And mm-hmm. outwardly, it may look exactly the same, coveting, yearning, uh, no. lament, uh, grumbling uh, to an outsider, but but we know the difference. Yeah. And we, we yeah. if we are generally very open and honest to our own heart sensibilities. You use the term heart, and I think that's right. Um, uh, It's something that we may be able to deceive others in terms of our own internal heart struggles, but but we know whether we are are coveting versus yearning in a a God-honoring way versus a sinful and right. these these subtle distinctions, these uh, almost dualities that that Scott was talking about, Peter was working on, it, it goes to show that sin is always parasitically dependent on the good. It's always a distorted yeah. version of yep. the good. Yeah. And so sin could look like good things turn into ultimate things, and it, it, it looks very much like the good because it can have no independence away from the good. Another way to think about this that that was really helpful for me is from Keller's preaching, where where Keller would would make this really be about identity and justification. What is it that I can't live without? What is it that gives me my identity, my justification, that I'm justified in my life because I have this? Mm-hmm. That's that's what's going to indicate your, your, your coveting versus a proper sort of petitionary stance. Uh, so in other words, then if, if you don't have this, then your life is not meaningful. That yeah. if you don't have this, then your life is not worth living. But what is that except for God alone? And mm-hmm. the moment you, you replace God with something else parasitically, then you know that you have an idol. Yeah, that's good. So the opposite of coveting is contentment and satisfaction in the Lord. It's you know, peace that passes all understanding. Exactly. Amen. And that's, uh, for me, it's often, you know, with the Ten Commandments, I, I try to think, okay, so what's the positive thing as opposed to just negating the things I shouldn't do? What's the thing I should yearn right. and, and seek after? Yeah. And that con- contentment is in a rightful acknowledgement that God is abundant 
that he provides. He's provisional. He's Jehovah Jireh, as it were. Um, he is benevolent. He loves you. It's not just that he has the stuff and he provides it, but he loves us. He wants what's best for us. And then that he knows us. It's not that he loves us, is good, has all the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that he also actually knows who we are. You know, he acknowledges the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And I think Christian contentment has to be built out of that recognition of who God is Amen. and these characteristics, right? And that that's how, to me also, because I, I do as I'm reading the coveting, I'm like, it's interesting this is a Ten Commandment. Like I, I kind of, it always surprises me a little bit in light of the other ones. The other ones make sense. It's kind of basic ethics yeah, this one for life. And this one, I'm like, huh. Yeah. But you can see, what is it doing? It's kind of wrapping up everything that we've talked about in the Ten Commandments to trusting in the Lord as your provider, both as creator and redeemer. Amen. There Thanks. is a great Psalm 73 ending, you know, mm. whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you. Yeah. It just really captures the the, the positive aspect of the yeah. Tenth Commandment, yeah. I keep thinking about Psalm 73. It's not just there. It's, it's everywhere. In Hosea, yeah, it's everywhere. you know, uh, even the, you, this idea of the Lord being your portion. And what's interesting in the Psalms, and in Hosea at least, is that it really drills down to wonder if you don't have anything but the Lord. Even though my flesh fails, my heart fails, you're my portion. I think of Peter saying, where else are we going to go? You're the only one who's got the words of eternal life, you know, in, in John 6. That at the end seems to be the end of the, the 10th commandment. Mm-hmm. The end is that finally you're, you recognize truly what we call the sufficiency, right? The sufficiency of Christ and, and, and who he is for us. He's our portion. Mm-hmm. Been great having this conversation. Thanks, brothers for uh, being able to jump around a little bit and cover different topics. Thank you for being content with that. Not, not coveting, not coveting a more modeled, more organized schedule of conversation and agenda. Um, look forward to talking with everyone again next week. Until then, take care. I do have a question. Are rollerblades still a thing? Oh, my They're still a thing, but what is it actually being used? My daughter goes through rollerblades like three or four oh, years. Yeah? She just blades around and wears out those wheels. And uh, I just decided I'm just going to get replacement wheels. It's just way too expensive to buy new rollerblades every time.